Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier podcast for Canadian public policy. My name is Shuv Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Mohan Malik, Professor at the Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies in Honolulu, who's visiting us here in Ottawa today. Dr. Malik has written seminal works on security issues in the Indo-Pacific region. In 2014, he wrote Maritime Security in the Pacific, and in 2011, he wrote about Canada and India, Great Power Rivals. There are some fascinating issues at play in China today, particularly with the advent of President Xi's extension over his leadership in that country. So, Mohan, I'm curious, what's your assessment as to what is happening in the People's Republic and some of the broader consequences uh, in the multipolar geopolitical space? Starting off with uh, uh, the recent party congress in China, Indian party congress, uh, what we are seeing now is the transformation of uh, uh, one party state into a totalitarian state. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, has uh, brought an end to the collective leadership system that was put in place by Deng Xiaoping post-Mao period to bring an end to personality cult. Every leader was supposed to serve only two terms and retire. Uh, Xi Jinping sees himself in the same mold as Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and uh, now Xi Jinping. If Mao Zedong liberated China, mm-hmm. Deng Xiaoping made China rich and prosperous through his uh, four modernization strategy. Xi Jinping wants to make China strong and powerful as a global power. And he believes that uh, he uh, can do so. He can reunify lost territories, as China calls them, like Taiwan or Natural Pradesh, in dispute with uh, uh, India, that is called South Tibet, mm-hmm. uh, Sprackley Islands, Parasols, Sprackley Islands, South China Sea, only if he uh, continues to remain in power beyond two terms. So we are seeing the uh, re-emergence of personality-driven decision-making in Chinese politics. That was the case during Mao Zedong. Xi Jinping has gotten rid of all major rival power centers Mm -hmm. within the party and the military. Mm -hmm. Uh, PLA has been purged. Uh, The party has been purged as part of uh, Xi Jinping's uh, anti-corruption drive. So media, civil society, everybody has fallen in line. And uh, Xi Jinping wants to make sure that during his reign, China is able to emerge as or displace the U.S. as the superpower. And uh, that makes it uh, very difficult for other countries that were hoping for China to become more open in its, as uh, China gets richer, the expectation was that as China gets richer, China will become more open. Uh, if not democratic, more open, more transparent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, it will become less aggressive. Uh, that that has not uh, happened. In fact, uh, I would say that fundamental assumptions underlying Chinese policy in both Western and Asian capitals over the last 30 years have turned out to be flawed, faulty assumptions. Uh, some of these assumptions were that China was a regional power 
uh, it will never compete with the US at the global level. China will never have overseas bases. Uh, China will not uh, have a blue water uh, ocean going fleet uh, and China will uh, change as it uh, becomes part of international institutions, multilateral institutions will socialize China, will change China. Uh, Olympics, you know, internet was supposed to change Chinese politics right. and society. Right, yes. Um, and China's uh, uh, own uh, domestic political system and uh, will also undergo change, um, allowing for uh, local elections. All those experiments, controlled uh, experiments that were conducted at the county, provincial level, uh, not so much at the provincial level, but the county and village level, Correct. Have, uh, come to an end with Xi Jinping's um, um, uh, coming to power. So we are seeing a very different uh, China that is at a time when China's own economic growth is slowing down. It's becoming much more assertive, much more aggressive, actually, many would call it, um, and uh, uh, trying to uh, push other countries to fall in line. Interesting. Both big and small. <clears throat> Interesting. And, you know, Mohan, you're describing basically what is at the on the tongue and on the lips of every major foreign policy scholar in the world today, in that every seminal conversation is about this advent of the rise of China and how the world will respond to it, and whether the current international order that has seen such a long period of peace and prosperity will be able to survive. As you know and have written extensively about, China's Belt and Road Initiative is its economic arteries around the world. Uh, it constitutes a massive capital investment in infrastructure in far-flung places, far from the Chinese immediate near neighborhood, uh, including into Africa, the Americas. Uh, but this particularly became a pronounced issue for India as well. Last year, uh, the Chinese government sought to subvert international rules by building a highway in an area called Doklam. Can you give our listeners a context as to what happened last year and more significantly, some of your commentary about what we are seeing this year, even in the last days, as this infrastructure question builds up uh, international attention yet again? Yeah, China and India have disputed uh, borders uh, ever since China occupied Tibet and uh, converted the Indo-Tibetan, traditional Indo-Tibetan frontier into disputed Sino-Indian boundary in 1950. Mm -hmm. uh, but the dispute that we're talking about, uh, last year's military standoff mm -hmm. uh, in Doklam, that dispute is not between China and India. Uh, that dispute is between a tiny Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan and China. China and Bhutan, they are only two countries that China still has land border disputes. One is India, the second one is Bhutan. Bhutan is a very small, tiny Himalayan kingdom, Buddhist kingdom that has very close security ties with India. So India is the security guarantor for Bhutan. Bhutan has very small uh, defense force and it depends economically, militarily uh, on India for protection. Bhutan does not have diplomatic ties. That is the only country on China's periphery that does not have diplomatic ties with China. Interesting. Bhutan and China have been negotiating uh, their border dispute for almost two decades. Those talks have been going on. And the Chinese have offered to settle the dispute um, with Bhutan 
on the condition that Bhutan will end its security treaty with India and normalize relations with China. That has not happened to date. To pressurize Bhutan, China continues road building into disputed territory between Bhutan and China. This is in the last week. Yeah. So this happened last year and uh, this uh, again issue has again uh, resurfaced uh, in uh, over the last week or so. There have been reports that that road construction that was stopped by the Indian military. So Indian military crossed border to come to its allies' aid, uh, that is Bhutan's aid, when the PLA was accused of transgressing, building a road in territory that is claimed by Bhutan. So Bhutan, um, Indian military crossed over. um, It was not a dispute between India and China. It was Mm -hmm. a dispute between Bhutan and uh, China. So Indian military came to Bhutan's defense and uh, they crossed over the border and stopped the PLA uh, construction unit from constructing the road that was going to go south towards border with India. This road, forgive me for interrupting you, sir. This road, <clears throat> the significance of India's actions to stop China building the road, uh, if I understand it correctly, is without precedent. It's a first time uh, that China had responded to a, the intervention of another rival in building their constru- in constructing the roads. Yeah, that's right. Uh, China is building lots of roads uh, uh, all along its periphery, and this was the first time uh, that uh, India stopped China. Uh, this is a, what China has been doing for years. Uh, it's known as landslizing uh, in the South China Sea. You know, taking incremental steps, uh, meter by meter. You know, they are following the same strategy in the Himalayas mm-hmm. in landslizing. But the problem here is that this landslizing is coming at the cost of tiny Bhutan, right. uh, and uh, uh, it cannot protect itself. So it relies on India to come to its aid when its security is threatened. So over the last uh, few weeks, we uh, again, reports have uh, emerged that uh, the PLA actually increased its uh, deployments in the Doklong Plateau, which is disputed between Bhutan and India, uh, Bhutan and China, sorry. Uh, Doklong Plateau is disputed, disputed between China and Bhutan. So last year, uh, as a result of that agreement between India and China, uh, both sides withdrew. Uh, but during the winter months, satellite imagery showed that China had continued with the uh, construction and in a flanking maneuver, they have now built a road which is only four kilometers away from that standoff point that they engaged in military standoff last year uh, to prevent the PLA from constructing a road that was going to go closer toward the China-India border. Mm-hmm. So now again, there are reports that if uh, India does not do anything, uh, then the Chinese will have built that road. Uh, but India cannot do anything unless Bhutan invites India right. to come, its, uh, come to its uh, assistance. So uh, if Bhutan is so scared of China, uh, then it's uh, unlikely they will invite India and may reach a settlement, may decide to reach a settlement with China. China has offered to Bhutan what it believes is a very generous package that we will give you a large chunk of territory up in the north that's uh, on the northern border between Bhutan and China provided right. you let us control the Doklong Plateau which 
is borders China-India border. Right. So Chinese PLA is moving south, closer to the Indian border, with a Siliguri corridor that connects the northeastern states of India with the rest of India. Uh, and that's major concern as far as the Indian military is concerned. They don't want the Chinese military to move closer to the Indian uh, border. Whether India is going to intervene, again, we don't know. But uh, that uh, shows that the dispute that led to right. military standoff last year has not been resolved. It still continues and there yes. may be escalation in the days and weeks to come. Yeah, <clears throat> as is typical, China takes a longer view than the rest of us, doesn't it? Of course. <laughs> well, we're looking now. Um, I should ask you one more question about this particular stretch of highway. Is it economically significant to China? Is it militarily significant to China? What is the strategic value? of this particular piece of real estate, this tiny little piece of real estate, which the Kingdom of Bhutan is now at the crosshairs on a large question of the geopolitical order around. What is the significance of this real estate? Well, economically, it makes absolutely no sense because... <laughs> Thank you for the honesty. <laughs> it's a very sparsely populated region mm -hmm. and it's a, being built only for military purposes. Yes. It's a military road. Um, so that uh, tanks and APC, armored personal, personnel carriers, can have to apply on this road. Mm -hmm. uh, so its uh, utility is only for military purposes, not for economic purposes. Well, on that, <clears throat> I think it's a great springboard to go to the other side of the Indian subcontinent, particularly its, its waters. Uh, India, as you know, has three great oceans <laughs> around its uh, southern, eastern, western uh, sides. And the rivalry between India and China is your scholarship. So I'm curious, in this Indo-Pacific rivalry, what do we see, if you don't mind giving us a sense of uh, the rivalry as it currently stands in the South China Sea? In the South China Sea, China has already uh, militarized uh, all uh, seven or eight uh, uh, fake islands that it created uh, since uh, 2011, 2012. And uh, since the Scarborough show, uh, China uh, saw a window of opportunity uh, in the last uh, uh, three or four years of the Obama administration. Um, and post Scarborough show, mm -hmm. uh, the US brought the Philippines and China to the table to negotiate a deal whereby both sides were supposed to pull out. The Philippines kept its side of the bargain. But China refused to, and that's where the standoff uh, continues. And since 2012, China engaged in a massive, large-scale uh, land reclamation and dredging to create uh, uh, huge islands. Fairy Cross is one of them, uh, and which have now emerged as staging posts for Chinese Navy to uh, conduct naval operations in the heart of Southeast Asia, the Malacca Straits and the Indian Ocean. So as far as uh, the South China Sea is concerned, uh, China was engaged in a, a sea denial strategy by building these seven, eight islands, fake islands and militarizing them. Right. China has achieved its objectives. Uh, um, so uh, that's where we are in, in terms of South China Sea. There are talks going on between ASEAN and China uh, over the conduct, code of conduct, 
But uh, I'm pretty certain that this code of conduct will be for other countries what they can and cannot do, not so much for China. Uh, it won't constrain or restrain China from doing what it has been doing in the South China Sea. China has uh, taken a you know, go slow approach, uh, adopted go slow approach on the code of conduct with ASEAN countries uh, that lay claims to islands and reefs in the South China Sea. Um, we, I don't see any major breakthrough on, on that. Even if a code of conduct is um, concluded, it would not constrain China in any way. It would constrain the Philippines, Vietnam, and Malaysia. Right. So now we're talking about <clears throat> the military road building of China in the north of the country of India, from the Indian perspective. We're talking about the militarization of the South China Sea, where China is controlling high growth economic corridors or attempting to through their illegal island building exercise. What's happening in the Bay of Bengal? Well, in the Bay of Bengal, uh, Burma is seen, or Myanmar, is seen as a very vital component in China's Belt and Road, or One Belt, One Road strategy. Uh, Burma or Myanmar now occupies the same place in China's calculus of deterrence or economic strategy that Pakistan occupies in Southwest Asia. Mm -hmm. Actually, there are Chinese analysts who look at Burma and Pakistan as the west coast of China. China looks at the US, you know, the US United States emerged as a global superpower. It has a, a west coast and east coast. China feels contained because of US military presence in the Western Pacific, uh, in South Korea, Japan. It's uh, military ties with Philippines, you know, Australia. Right. So China is trying to break free of uh, this uh, C-shaped encirclement by U.S. friends and allies in the region and reaching out. This is what uh, One Belt, One Road is all about, uh, but it has its origins. It, they go back to uh, Western, great Western development mm -hmm. uh, that was launched under Chiang Zemin, mm -hmm. and then it became go march, a uh, march west or go west policy, march west, go west policy. Yes. Um, since China is faced with competition from Japan and the US in the Western Pacific, it should go toward west of China. That means Central Asia, right. South Asia, right. Southwest Asia, where it faces little competition from rival powers. Right. Uh, uh, in in uh, Central Asia, Eurasia, you know, Russia is much weaker. Yes. Uh, as far as the Silk uh, Road Economic Bank is concerned, uh, Russia has come out in support of that uh, initiative. China faces little or no competition. Most Central Asian republics have fallen under China's influence. Likewise, in South Asia, India's neighbors, they all have concerns vis-a-vis -vis India because of unresolved territorial disputes, animosities, suspicion. Mm -hmm. So Pakistan has always been a long-term China ally. Now you see small neighbors of India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, also playing the China card, tilting toward China. Chinese have very big pockets. They go into those countries, offer billions of dollars of assistance, infrastructure projects. They cannot say no to those projects. Uh, they need development, and development needs uh, capital, and Chinese are willing to finance them. 
So uh, that's how we see China's one belt, one road strategy, belt and road initiative, trying to establish what I call a hub and spokes economic system that places China at the center of all economic growth. And China is trying to build these arteries, mm-hmm. highways, railroads, pipeline networks through Pakistan, through Myanmar, that will bring oil and gas from the Middle East through these countries into Western China, Yunnan province from Myanmar, mm-hmm. from the Bay of Bengal into Yunnan province, mm-hmm. and from Gwadar port uh, in the state of Hormuz all the way to Xinjiang. So this is China's energy diversification strategy. It's a very clever strategy very clever. to reduce their reliance on the Manakka Straits, which they fear that US Navy and Indian Navy can choke off their you know, supply lines in the event of a conflict across the Taiwan Straits or in the South China Sea. So they are establishing these railroads and pipeline networks and through Central Asia oil gas pipeline between Kazakhstan and China. It's built by the Chinese, financed by the Chinese, protected by the Chinese. Right. Yes. So, uh, and Russia is a major exporter of uh, energy, uh, oil and gas to China. After Ukraine sanctions, Russia has nowhere to go, but Except China. China East. Exactly. So that is China's competitive advantage, you know. So China is taking advantage of this. From China's perspective, to continue to sustain its economic growth, China needs resources. So what was it that led to the colonization of Asia, Africa, and Latin America in the 18th and 19th centuries? It was not the white man's burden. It was a search for resources by European industrializing countries, markets to dump manufactured goods, resources to fuel economic growth in Europe, Mm -hmm. markets to dump manufactured goods, and then came coaling stations, bases, to protect the first two. Sounds familiar. Yeah, resources, markets, and bases. These three always go together. You cannot have one without the other. That's exactly what is driving China's strategy today. So as China looks at becoming this new colonial power in this new century, uh, to pick up on what you're saying here, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the Indian Ocean and what is happening in Sri Lanka and the Maldives and some of the other uh, little island states in which China is being accused of generating a string of pearls in their parlance, which is such a pretty idea when you think about it. But I think it's a lot more nefarious in terms of a chokehold around India. Yeah, when this uh, string of pearls concept was here, I contributed to this study done by Julie McDonald, uh, Energy mm-hmm. Futures in Asia 2004 uh, for uh, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense. There were a lot of skeptics, uh, just as there were skeptics that China does not want and will not have an aircraft carrier, uh, that China will not view an ocean-going blue-water navy. There were a lot of skeptics who argued that there is no such thing as string of pulse. It's a figment of imagination of uh, strategists. Or, um, uh, Turned out it was exactly right. Exactly right. And Belt and Road, a maritime silk road, the maritime component of uh, Belt and Road is actually I call it string of pearls 2.0. Oh, interesting. So the string is getting longer and the number of pearls is increasing. Yes. Uh, and now we see Chinese naval presence uh, in Djibouti, Gwadar. They are looking at another port, Jiwani in Pakistan, uh, Chakpu port in Myanmar. Then you have Hambantota port. Maldives, they have leased a port. So they have leased uh, Djibouti for 15 years. They have leased Gwadar port for 40 years. 
They have leased Hamban Tota port for 99 years. Incredible. They have leased uh, one Maldivian port for 50 years, ostensibly for tourism purposes. <laughs> and they are now pressuring Myanmar, the Burmese government, to give them 99-year lease on Chaku port in the Bay of Bengal that China is building if Burma wants to avoid paying penalty because the Myanmar government reneged on a deal that it concluded with China on building an a, a dam, energy dam, with Sony Dam yes. in 2011, the Burmese government is required to pay $1 billion penalty to China. So the Chinese have come up with this proposal to the uh, Burmese government that, okay, you don't have to pay this penalty provided you give us 75-85% stake. This Chaku port was supposed to be a joint venture between China and Myanmar, 50-50 joint venture. Right. But now the Chinese are pressuring the Burmese government to give, raise their stake from 50% to 75-85% and give them lease for 99 years. Cambodia is another case, interesting case study. Prime Minister uh, Hun Sen, yes. <laughs> um, he's uh, China's man, you know. Always has Cambodia. been. Yeah. So 20% of Cambodian coastline is leased to one Chinese company based in Tianjin called UDG, United Development Group. Interesting. 20% of Cambodia's coastline, Cambodia, China is also building a port, you know, Kampong San, Sihanoukville port in Cambodia. Right. 20% of Cambodian coastline is leased to China to one Chinese company for 99 year lease. And Cambodia is at that intersection of Chinese, Vietnamese, and yes. American rivalry. Yes. <clears throat> so you see the number of ports increasing. There's a talk of Lamu port in Kenya being leased, then uh, Wadley space. So China's strategy is to acquire naval presence all along maritime choke points, state of Hormuz, Guadar, Malacca. Malacca, you know, China is building a big new city, even though Malaysia doesn't need it. That's going to see Malaysia becoming highly indebted to China. Malacca city, you know. Correct. You have Maldives, Sri Lanka, right. and uh, Madagascar, Seychelles invited China to build a uh, port there, you know, to get, have access to their ports in Seychelles for conducting counter piracy operations. So this string of pearls is uh, uh, real. Actually, it's much bigger than what it was uh, talked about a decade ago or so. Well, let's hope that foreign policy planners and decision makers are paying heed to your cautionary tale now, because what we are seeing in the Maldives and Sri Lanka especially, we have many Canadians, both of Maldivian and uh, Sri Lankan origin, uh, who care deeply about what's been happening in that country and how the regimes are constantly under threat. The institutions of democracy are constantly being subverted by outside forces, often a partnership between China and Pakistan or some, some derivative therein. But what is the, the bigger picture here? We have friends and allies in the region to our international order, people who believe in a rules-based system, including governments in New Delhi and in Japan and Tokyo. I'm curious, in the context of what the world must do to respond to this ascent of a China revealed as a colonial power, what is your prescription for countries that share our values and our interests to do to work as a concert of nations? Yeah, yes. uh, I'm glad you bring this up. Uh, in one of my articles, I've argued that what is happening now is a clash of values between 
Obor, one belt, one road, and the Quad, the recently disrupted Quad comprising US, Japan, India, and Australia. Exactly. Uh, quad 2.0, uh, uh, because uh, Quad uh, 1.0 was uh, uh, dismantled in 2008 after Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister of Australia. Right. And uh, defected from the Quad. Quite a sinophile, that gentleman. Yes, uh, uh, and that was done um, um, in a manner that really upset many countries. Uh, uh, in the presence of uh, then Chinese Foreign Minister Yang Chie-chu, uh, Australian Foreign Minister Stephen Smith announced that Australia does not want to be part of any balancing or containing China efforts, so we are pulling out of the Quad. That's why India was quite apprehensive, uh, had reservations about Australia, welcoming Australia back into the Quad. Right. Anyway, um, uh, Chinese uh, have worked very hard to bring uh, Quad 2.0 into reality again after 10 years. Many would argue that if uh, Quad had not been dismantled uh, 10 years ago, maybe China would not have engaged in fake island construction in the South China Sea and not, may not have. It would have been a better deterrent. Yes. yes. Uh, it saw uh, Western countries. Um, uh, uh, failing to come together to deter China. Right. So China had a great degree of latitude to right. do what it uh, could do, uh, took advantage of the, of that. Now, it's uh, whether it is the Maldives or Cambodia uh, or Sri Lanka, other countries you see in uh, China interfering in domestic affairs of other countries to install friendly blind regimes mm -hmm. that will provide access to resources, markets and bases in those countries. So Western institutions, the US-led liberal international order has not turned out to be as durable as it was supposed to be. It's very delicately put. Yes. Uh, that's a major challenge the U.S. Uh, faces now, you know. Uh, China is undermining Western-led institutions. It's not just uh, Chinese investments. Wherever China goes, you see curbs imposed on civil society, opposition leaders put behind bars, uh, judiciary, independent media crushed, and strongmen emerging to serve their own personal Correct. and China's interests. Correct. So this is what I call a clash of values. The march of authoritarianism that, and the challenge it poses to democratic societies worldwide. This is happening also in Europe. It's not confined to countries on China's periphery. Uh, the European Union faces a big challenge from 16 plus one uh, grouping that China has formed Countries like Serbia, mm -hmm. uh, Greece, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Macedonia. Yes. All these countries, uh, like Greece, you know, undermined uh, EU's efforts to sanction or to criticize China's human rights uh, 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 record in the UN. Uh, that's what Cambodia does. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis the South China Sea dispute prevents countries in Southeast Asia from coming together to counter China's uh, moves in, in the South China Sea. Of course, it only insists on bilateral negotiations, not multilateral. Yeah, because that's where China has a clear advantage. They can bully. Yes. <clears throat> so this challenge is at various levels. It's at the economic level. It's at the political level. It's at the normative level. What kind of order we're going to live in? 
if uh, the largest, if China is going to emerge as the largest economy in the world and tries to recast the world in its own image. The Chinese over the last one or two years have been saying uh, that uh, the China model is far better than any other political model, especially for developing countries. So now China is openly exporting its form of governance to other countries. And how do you counter that? This is the challenge for Western democracies for the newly selected Quad. Incredible. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Mohan Malik, uh, you have given us and our listeners a seminal overview of the strategic challenge that China poses, not just in the Indo-Pacific region, but to the world order as well. And I don't think you're, I don't think you're uh, misguided. This is a central thesis you've been writing and commenting about for well over a decade, decades indeed. I'm not going to age you out on this show. Uh, but I wanted to thank you very, very much for coming into Ottawa and being part of our podcast today. Uh, and I'd like to encourage listeners to turn into our McDonald Laurier website, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, to read uh, the two-part series uh, that Mohan has published with us called The China-India Nautical Games in the Indian Ocean. These are extremely important documents that will help brief you and brief Canadian policymakers on the strategic challenge China poses and what Canada could do to respond. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Yeah.